Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Storybound. This week on the show, we're joined by Madhuri Vijay, who will be reading an excerpt from her debut novel, The Far Field, which The New Yorker described as having exquisite but unflowery prose and with sincere sentiment but little sentimentality. Madhuri won the Pushcart Prize for The Far Field, which was also a publisher's weekly best book of 2019, an economist's best book of the year, and was anticipated everywhere from Entertainment Weekly to The Wall Street Journal. She will be joined by the French Cassettes, a harmony-driven power-pop rock quartet for an original musical score. Madhuri's The Far Field examines Indian politics, class prejudice, and sexuality through the lens of an outsider, offering a profound meditation on grief, guilt, and the limits of compassion. You will hear all of this in Madhuri's reading. Well, we actually recorded this while Madhuri was reading from a studio in Hawaii, and we are still jealous. All right, let's start the show. I'm Madhuri Vijay, and this is an excerpt of my novel, The Far Field. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you'll hear Madhuri Vijay read an excerpt from her debut novel, The Far Field, with an original musical score created from the song Utah by the French Cassettes. And if you stick around until after the credits, you'll learn more about future artists appearing on season three. See you then. My mother asleep. The summer afternoon, the sun, an open wound, the air outside straining with heat and noise. But here in our living room, the curtains are drawn. There is a dim and deadly silence. My mother lies on the sofa, cheek pressed to the armrest, asleep. The bell rings. She doesn't open her eyes right away, but there is movement behind her lids, the long return from wherever she has been. She stands, walks to the door. Hello, madam. Hello, hello. I am selling some very nice pens. Good afternoon, madam. Please listen to this offer. If you subscribe to one magazine, you get a long-lashed boy with a laminated sign. I am from deaf and dumb society. Oh, get lost, my mother says, and shuts the door. Somebody once described my mother as a strong woman. From the speaker's tone, I knew it was not intended to be a compliment. This was, after all, the woman who cut off all contact with her own father after he repeatedly ignored his wife's chronic lower back pain which turned out to be the last stages of pancreatic cancer. The woman who once broke a flickering light bulb by flinging a scalding hot vessel of rice at it. The woman whose mere approach made shopkeepers hurry into the back, praying for invisibility. The woman who sometimes didn't sleep for three nights in a row. The 
woman who nodded sympathetically through a neighbor's fond and disingenuous complaints about the naughtiness of her five-year-old son, then said, with every appearance of sincerity, He sounds awful. Shall I slit his throat for you and get it over with? This was the woman whose daughter I am, was, am. All else flows from that. 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 When she died, I was 21, in my last year of college. When I got the call, I took an overnight bus back to Bangalore, carrying nothing but a fistful of change from the ticket. Eleven people came to her funeral, including my father, me, and Stella, our maid, who brought her youngest son. We stood near the doorway, wedged between the blazing mouth of the electric crematorium and the March heat. The only breeze came from Stella's son, who kept spinning the red rotors of a toy helicopter. The evening after the funeral, after everybody had left, my father shut himself into his bedroom and I left the house and walked. Between the two of us, we had finished several pegs of rum and a quarter bottle of whiskey. I found myself standing on a busy main road with no recollection of having arrived there. People flowed around me. Shops and bars glittered and trembled, and I tried to think of the future. In a few days I would return to college. My final year exams were just weeks away. After that, I would pack up my things and return to Bangalore. After that, Nothing. A bus rattled past, mostly empty, only a few tired heads lolling in windows. A waiter in a dirty banyan dumped a bucket of chalky water onto the road in front of a restaurant. Earlier that day, while a gangly priest droned on and on, my father had overturned my mother's ashes into a scummy green concrete tank. And then he had continued, somewhat helplessly, to hold on to the clay urn. Without thinking, I snatched it from his hand and dropped it onto a rubbish pile. It was something my mother herself might have done. The look on the Vadyar's face was of shock and faintly disgusted delight. I waited for my father to bring it up later, but he didn't. I stood in the same spot until the waiter, now with two other men, emerged from the restaurant. They were dressed to go out in close-fitting shirts lustrous as fish scales. They passed right before me. I heard a scrap of their laughter and tensed, ready for a fight, waiting for the leer 
the catcall, the line from a love song. But instead, they crossed the road and were gone. The music you're hearing in this episode was composed from the song Utah by the French Cassettes. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Madhuri Vijay. And now we're back from our break. Though he insisted on all the right rituals for my mother. My father claimed to have shed God and Brahmanism long ago in his own youth, finding a substitute in engineering, Simon and Garfunkel, the wealth of nations, and long-haired college companions who drank late into the night, filling the room with Will's smoke and boozy rants about politics, both of which eddied and went nowhere. Three years of a master's degree at Columbia had left him with a fondness for America, especially her jazz, her confidence, and her coffee, which he liked to say happily was the worst he'd ever tasted. When he returned to India, he worked for a few years. Then my grandfather, as had always been the plan, provided him with the capital to start a factory manufacturing construction equipment. And when that foundered and fell apart, more capital for a second factory, which flourished. My father, in those years, liked to speak of rationality and pragmatism, as though they were personal friends of his. Yet it was he who inevitably rose to his feet at the end of our dinner parties, who raised his glass and declared, blinking away tears. To you, my dear friends, and to this rarest of nights. He had the intelligent man's faith in the weight of his own ideas and the emotional man's impatience with anyone who did not share them. As he grew older and more successful, his confidence did not change. It merely settled and became wider, a well-fed confidence. Only my mother could make him falter. She had, apparently, made him falter the day he arrived on a brand new motorcycle to inspect as a potential bride, the youngest daughter of a mid-level railways employee. He saw a woman standing barefoot on the street wearing a shabby cotton sari. He asked if he was in the right place, and my mother replied, certainly, if what you're here to do is look ridiculous. My father used to love to tell this story, and also to tell how she had rejected suitor after suitor before him, before him, one for asking about her family's dental and medical history, before him, one for inquiring whether the dowry would be paid in gold or cash, one simply for smiling too much before him. I have no way of knowing if any of this is true, since my mother never told stories, least of all about herself. 
but I've heard they went on a walk during which my father outlined his plans for his life. Grow the company for a couple of years, have a child in three, maybe another child the year after. At the end, he paused for my mother's reaction. Well, you do talk a lot, she said thoughtfully, but if you're going to be working all day, I suppose I won't have to listen to most of it.
And that song you just heard was called Utah by the French Cassettes. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Madhuri Vijay. And now for our final chapter. My mother, with her lightning tongue and her small collections of idols on a shelf in the kitchen. My mother, with her stubborn refusal to admit the existence of meat or other faiths, who crossed the street when we passed a halal butcher with his row of skinned goats, their flanks pink and shiny as burn scars. My father did not eat meat either, but he was quick to add that it was personal preference. According to him, there was no logic-based argument against non-vegetarianism. I myself had sampled bites of chicken and mutton, even beef, from friends' lunchboxes, and apart from an initial queasiness that soon passed, I liked them all. The one time I made the mistake of telling my mother, she held out her arm and said, Still hungry, little beast? She could be vicious, and yet there were times, especially in a crowd, when she was pure energy, drawing the world to herself. She was already tall, but at these times, she became immense. Her mouth would fall open, and her crooked incisor, which looked like a single note held on a piano, acquired an oblique seductiveness. Men approached her, even when I was present. During a function at my father's factory one year, his floor manager tried to flatter her. That's a beautiful sari, he said, his eyes on her breasts. The floor manager was an energetic stub of a man who had been with my father since the beginning, had slept on the factory floor so they could save on a watchman. I had attended his son's birthday parties. Now he was looking at my mother's breasts. She was eating a samosa from a silver foil plate and there were crumbs on her cheek. Without pausing in her chewing, she said, The conference room is empty, shall we go? The floor manager swallowed hard, then glanced at me as if I, a child, might tell him what to do. He sputtered something about getting her another samosa and almost tripped on his flight to the buffet table. My mother shot me a quick, arch look before walking away. It was only when she prayed in front of her idols that she shrank, became a person with ordinary dimensions. Every morning, she tucked flowers around their brass necks and lit the blackened lamp and stood for a minute without bending or moving her lips. My father wisely refrained from making his usual speech about the irrationality of organized religion and she, in turn, chose not to point out that his beloved college LP collection, carefully dusted and alphabetized, was as good as a shrine. Likewise, my mother never insisted that I prostrate myself 
or learn the names of her gods. Though I sometimes wish she had. She never forbade me from joining either, but it was implicit. And in that lay the fundamental irony of our relationship and the clearest evidence of how she saw the world. My mother considered me, her only child, a suitable accomplice for the greatest secret of her life. But when she prayed, she wanted to be alone. We could do the things that we used to do. Here is another story my father once loved to tell. When I was about two, I went through a phase where I belonged, body and soul, to him. I screamed bloody murder if he was in the room and not holding me, bloodier still when my mother tried to take me from him. I tolerated her while he was at work, but barely. One afternoon, seeing I was in a rare, calm mood, she hustled me out to do her grocery shopping. It was a mistake. While she swiftly chose flour and oil, biscuits and tea, I'd started to whimper. By the time she was ready to pay, I'd launched into a full-blown tirade, howling, hitting her on the side of the head, clinging to any stranger that passed by. My mother was finally forced to ask the shopkeeper if she could use his phone. She called my father and explained, and 30 minutes later, he burst in with outstretched arms. He carried me home, a shameless, grinning trophy, while my mother trailed behind us, lugging the groceries. I don't know when my allegiance shifted, when I went from being his to being hers. All I know are the facts. I was my father's daughter first, and then I became, gradually and irrevocably, my mother's. It's hard not to wonder how much might have been prevented if only I had loved him more, or perhaps loved her a little less. But that is useless thinking and perilous. Better to let things stand as they were. She, my incandescent mother, and I, her little beast. Dang, can you believe we are only on episode two? Madhuri really hit it out of the park. So grab yourself a copy of her book, The Far Field. We had a blast working on this episode. Thank you to the French Cassettes for sharing their song with us. The song is titled Utah. Go look it up on Spotify, stream the whole album, Rolodex by the French Cassettes. It's brand new and full of good stuff. We also want to thank Chris Plotnick from Grace Recording Studio in Maui, John Mark Bowling from Grove Atlantic, and Jeff Kilgore at The Syndicate. This episode was mixed by Timothy Carplus. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Pod Agglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. Next week, we've got senior writer Andy Greenberg from Wired Magazine sharing a story he researched himself. 
how 30 lines of code blew up a 27-ton generator. And if you're curious what other musicians we're having on, get on Spotify and look up Oginali. That's O-G-I-N-A-L-L-I-I. Oginali or Daniel Frankweisen, Xander Marsden, Marco Pave. That's just to name a few. Make sure you are subscribed and find us on Instagram at StoryBoundPod for more updates. We'll see you again this coming Tuesday. Thanks for listening. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.